If you would uh, follow me along in the reading of the Word of God from the 24th chapter of, 20 of Matthew, we will continue our reading there. I thought that it would be wise and good and prudent to capture the context once again. I'll begin reading at verse 1. I'll be going down through verse 20 or verse 35 as we consider our time here this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines pestilences, and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass, pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be God. Our gracious Father, as we have here a, a tremendous text before us that our ears need to be open to hear and understand. And as we read it, give us the understanding. We pray the Spirit of God would 
go forth today in the preaching of your word into all of our hearts and lives, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, and that your spirit would convict us of our sins and bring us into conformity of the, of the fidelity of the covenant of which Christ has shown. We claim Christ as our king. We claim him as the great ruler over all kings. He is our Lord, and we bow our knee this day to him. All glory and power and honor are due to his name. And we pray that you would fill us with a great reverence and awe and gravitas of who he is. And we pray that you would bless us this day, squaring us up with the truth of the scripture. And may we leave here with greater decision in our character and in our lives to be faithful all the days of our lives to the covenant and to our relationship and to our great God, our great Lord, and to the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of the risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey describes a paradigm, a paradigm as a model. It's a way that we see the world. It's what we would call a worldview. It's our map. He used an illustration of a man climbing a ladder and did so for the majority of his life. But when he reached the top, he found that the ladder was leading against the wrong building. I look at so much of what is going on today in the churches in the name of Christianity, and it appears to me that there is a ladder that in many of these churches are leaning against a wrong building. That their faith is not leaning on the God of the Bible. When we embrace a paradigm or a worldview of the world, rather than in contrast with it, we are off. The way that we think about God has also affected by this cultivation of a godless worldview, the way that we think about even how we're to go about living our lives. To a humanistic and an atheistic world who doesn't accept God, they have no fear of God in their soul. And I'm afraid that a lot of this lethargy and apathy has come into the way that we think about God as well. We too often desire to make God something that we think He should be or what we would like for Him to be. We create idols that are not God, but we call them God. We like the fact that God is loving and a loving God, but the nature of that godly love is often maligned and untrue. We liked the concepts of a, a God of peace, but find it difficult to consider a righteously wrathful God, a God of vengeance. Many people spurn the thought of a severe God, an angry God, a God of vengeance, violence, and retribution, but that is also the God of the Bible. The problem is that God is truth. And we can't change Him or we can't change the truth based on our personal preferences or our desires or what is comfortable to us. We must accept God for who He is and how He's revealed Himself to us. And if we do not accept it or believe it, that does not change those facts. What we are seeing in Matthew 24 is an unapologetic justice and severity of God and a vengeance of a holy and righteous God. A God of wrath and a God of righteousness. A God of passion and a God of just indignation. And the lesson for us all in this is to understand that the God whose vengeance was poured out on His unfaithful people is the same God today as He was then. He is a God to be feared and not tested. 
And we need to adjust ourselves to Him and not to attempt to tailor Him to suit ourselves. There are a number of things that I admit that are uncomfortable about God. But the problem is not with Him. There are things we do not understand why He allows. There are things that we do not understand about why He does what He does. But there is no fault with Him. We do well to accept God on His terms and how He's revealed Himself to us. And while God is a God of peace and of all comfort, we can be uncomfortable also with Him with the great fear and gravitas which are due His name. Isaiah was uncomfortable with God when he saw God's glory in the temple. In Isaiah 6, and he falls down and he cries, Woe is he! Peter was uncomfortable with Christ when his eyes were opened a bit more when he saw the holiness of Christ. The disciples were uncomfortable with Christ when their eyes were opened to who He was. And who is this that can cause the sea and the winds to obey Him? Saul of Tarsus was uncomfortable when he was smitten with the bright, bright light and he was blinded for days when he encountered the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. You will never figure God out. You can never predict what He will do. You can never explain Him. You can never contain Him in a box of comfort. But thankfully, our faith in Him is not limited to or by our understanding. We don't have to understand Him to trust Him. And this morning I want to preach to you on the just severity of God in the coming of Jesus in judgment on His own people who rejected Him. While we're in Matthew 24, learning what Christ has informed His disciples that would shortly take place, Jesus was in Jerusalem, a city that was more than just a holy city, it was a symbol of God's presence and His glorious dwelling among His people here on earth. In the center of Jerusalem was the temple where Jesus had just had several conversations before He went to the Mount of Olives and instructed His disciples further. And that temple was the epicenter of Jewish life and Jewish culture and Jewish religion and Jewish identity. And gave that city, Jerusalem, its identity. Jesus said that the temple and the city would be destroyed. And His disciples asked Him, when will these things take place? And when will be the end of the age? And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was finalized in A.D. 70, which also marked the end of the Jewish age, ended their covenantal relationship with God. It ended the age of their history up to that point which had been progressing. A new age had come in. It's the age of the kingdom of God. And it's the new covenant era. The age where Christ will reign until all of His enemies are put underneath His feet. An age where the church is empowered to battle the spiritual dark forces that control the environment here. It's an age that will be consummated in a great victory for the church and a great defeat over all her enemies. But the end of the temple and Jerusalem, at the end of this Jewish age, would end in a violent manner. 
Because the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The events of the end of the temple and the Jewish age would coincide with the coming of the kingdom of Christ and the pouring out of His Spirit upon His church. And while the two events were roughly 40 years apart from each other, we should keep the events all together in one broad stroke of the brush, if you will, pertaining to His first advent. As we think about His first advent and those events that would take place over largely 70 years of time, we consider His incarnation and His birth in Bethlehem, growing up and then His three years of public ministry. We think about the time in which then He goes to Jerusalem pronouncing that He is the King and the Messiah, the context in which we are settled right here in Matthew. But then shortly, He's going to go to the cross and bear the sins of His people and and be crucified in a horrible death. And He was buried and raised together, or raised in three days. And then He presented Himself to His disciples, and then in their sight, went back up into heaven, sat down on the right of the majesty on high, sent His Spirit out to empower His disciples, who then go out and preach the gospel, and then the sign and the display of this great enthronement of Jesus, the King of kings, now comes in A.D. 70 to show that He is now reigning as the Messiah. All of those... Separate events actually go together in one large event that we know of as the first advent. Jesus informs them that all of these things that he's revealing to them will happen in their own generation. And that's what he says in verse 34, Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things will take place. Now last week we considered a first portion of of this chapter up to the abomination of desolation, which was prophesied by Daniel. And that abomination of desolation would take place when the pagan armies would then surround the city. That was the beginning of it. And then as they would stand in the holy place, and that holy place is considered both the temple and this holy city. And it was a sign that you will see this going on, that which Daniel prophesied. And these pagan armies would then come in and desecrate the temple and desecrate the holy city. And when they began to see that happening at the first sign of that, which was actually in A.D. 66-67, that was the sign to flee for those who can read and understand. According to John Bray, he says it is most interesting to note that, not, that none of the Christians perished during the final siege of the destruction of Jerusalem. When Titus, the Roman general, came into the city, he did not find a single Christian there. Of course, they had all fled into the city upon the instruction of Jesus when they first saw the armies surrounding the city. So the elect of God, the Christians who were then living in Jerusalem, the The elect Jews at the time had a warning sign and would prompt them to flee. Now many of the disciples by this time had already been persecuted and and killed by either Jews or, or Romans. And they would not see this horrible event as a grace. We come to verse 21, and this is going to be where we're spending some time this morning when we read that there is a great tribulation, for then there will be a great tribulation, the likes of which you've never heard, nor will the likes of which will ever occur again. And according to Matthew, this tribulation did not occur at the end of our history, but really in the middle of our history. It occurred at the end of the Jewish history, but not our history. It's not yet a future event to us, but it was a future event to the time in which Jesus was then speaking. But it would come about in that generation. It was not merely the quantity or the 
the mass of gruel and gruesome, uh, heinous, gruesome deaths, as horrible as it was, that made the great tribulation the, the greatness. But it was the entire system of which the Jews themselves their system of religion, the, it would be the end of the priesthood, it would be the end of the temple, it would be the end of the sacrificial system, it would be the end of the daily sacrifice, it would be the end of their holy city as they knew it, never to come about ever again as they've known it. It would be the end of the Jewish nation as they had been formed by God. And what happened in 1948? did not undo what the tribulation did. And while there is a, an ethnic identity of Jews today, there is not a national identity as it was then, nor ever has been. And the 1948 establishment of the Jews as a nation is, is not really relevant in terms of the spiritual nation that Jesus was communicating. I do believe it's important even for the Scripture that the Jews have maintained their ethnic identity, but nationally they were cut off from God. Jesus was showing them in their time that their ladder was leaning against the wrong building. But they refused to change their paradigm, to repent of their sins and accept Him as their Messiah. Their latter needed to be leaning upon Him as the new temple. A truth that their hardness of their hearts could not and would not accept. Much of the horrific event that we know of as the Great Tribulation which occurred over approximately three and a half years from A.D. 67 to A.D. 70, which was the great finality and climax of this, has been recorded by a Jewish historian named Josephus who lived in the midst of it all and recorded some of these things firsthand. David Chilton summarizes some of this in his book, Paradise Restored. He says, quote, Josephus has left us an eyewitness record of much of the horror of those years and especially of the final days of Jerusalem. It was a time when the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood and night in fear. When it was common to see cities filled with dead bodies, when Jews panicked and began indiscriminately killing each other, when fathers tearfully slaughtered the entire families in order to prevent them from receiving worse treatment from the Romans. When in the midst of terrible famine, mothers killed, roasted, and ate their own children. When the whole land was all over filled with fire and blood, when lakes and seas turned red, dead bodies floated everywhere, littering the shores, bloating in the sun, rotting and splitting apart, when the Roman soldiers captured people to attempt, who attempted to escape and crucified them at the rate of 500 per day. Let him be crucified! Crucify him, they cried! His blood be upon us and our children, they said. The apostates had cried 40 years earlier these words at Jesus' trial. And when it was all over, more than one million Jews had been killed in the siege of Jerusalem. And close to a million more sold into slavery throughout the empire. And the whole of Judea lay smoldering in ruins, virtually depopulated, the days of vengeance had come with horrifying, unpitying intensity. In breaking her covenant, the holy city had become the Babylonish whore, and now she was a desert, a habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And the connection with Revelation 18. Josephus reports, quote, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning 
of the world, end quote. Philip Schaff in his uh, history of the Christian church says, quote, the daily sacrifice ceased on July the 17th, A.D. 70, because the hands were all needed for their defense. And the last of the bloodiest sacrifice on the altar of burnt offerings was the slaughter of thousands of Jews who had crowded around it. On, AD, on, on August the 9th of A.D. 70, Titus entered the temple, and the next day, on the 10th, he destroyed it. Legend has it that was the same day in which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple years before. Solomon Grazel, who was a Jewish historian, reported that the slaughter which then commenced is beyond description. The city was completely taken on September the 8th of A.D. 70. Josephus reported that Roman soldiers slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste to great many of the rest. At the conclusion of the war, so many killing had been done. It wearied the Roman soldiers. Over 1.3 million Jews had been killed in three years. Even Titus had to acknowledge when it was all over that it was God's hand that was in it. He says, quote, We have certainly had God for our assistant in this war, and it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications, for what could the hands of men or any machine do towards overthrowing these towers? End of quote. The great tribulation is that which has happened, and it was great indeed, not only with the great slaughter of of, of millions of Jews, or over a million Jews. But it was the end of the entire Jewish age and that which history had gone up to to that point, and now something different was about to take place. And it says in verse 29, now immediately after the tribulation in those days, this idea of being immediately after the tribulation really takes place at the end of the tribulation. What forms its climax and this final act when everything is now finished, it's the final act that is revealed to us in the great judgment of Christ. And this is the part we do not want to miss. This is the part that often gets overshadowed in a lot of the eschatological preaching and teaching today about all the graphs and the teaching of when these things are going to happen. But all of this devastation and all of this destruction was the doing of Christ Himself who came upon His people in judgment. A people that rejected Him. His severity should be understood as much as his love appreciated. And if that were true across the board in churches today, it would change drastically the paradigm of many churches who bought into the LBGTQ agenda the all-inclusiveness for the sake of God's love, who have ordained gay ministers, embraced that which is heinous in God's sight, but which is actually desecrating His holiness. Some of the complexity of this passage is due to the prophetic language in which it is couched of use to the descriptions here. It's a language that has been used before in Scripture, so it behooves us to, to compare Scripture with Scripture and allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture on these passages that can be a bit unfamiliar to us. In verse 29, it says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the language is filled with the creation, particularly the fourth day of creation, when the sun, moon, and stars were given for seasons and for signs. 
And the language that is used here is a language that God has used in the past so that when Jesus is giving this kind of language, it was not unfamiliar to the Jew. It was not something that they have not recognized. It would be something that they have been familiar with. It was a language that shows God's judgment. When Isaiah prophesied of Babylon's fall to the Medes and 539 B.C., he said in Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 10, hear these words, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine." Prophetically, what he's saying there, God is about to judge you. In Babylon, your lights are about to go out. When Isaiah prophesied of the fall of Edom, he uses similar language in the 34th chapter when he says, All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and the fruit falling from a fig tree. He's using creation language. By showing the end in judgment. Amos prophesied of the doom of Samaria in Amos 8 9 in similar type of language. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Ezekiel also uses this language of great judgment when he is speaking against Egypt. And their lights are about to go out. He says, when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All bright lights of the heaven I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. He's done that literally before. And now figuratively, he's speaking the same language in order to show forth the judgment that is pending. And now he uses the language here. Jesus uses that same language when he's telling the Jews as a nation, your lights are about to go out. Judgment is coming upon you. And then that segues into verse 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now there is a a challenge in some of the modern translations here, and particularly the one I just read from, the New King James Version, which I believe has been biased and slanted by a particular view of eschatology, which has shaped the way that they have translated If you go back to older translations like the King James Version, you won't find that. And some of the modern translations, which have been more reformed in their thought, the ESV particularly, will be consistent with the ancient translation. It says here, reading it from the New King James, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. But it should read this way, and then will appear the sign of of the Son of Man in heaven. That's the way the King James reads it. That's the way the ESV puts it as well. In other words, the location is is heaven. Some translations would have sky. The location is heaven. And the sign is, is the Son of Man who is in heaven. It's not the sign in the heaven. The sign is the Son of Man which is in heaven. In other words, the Son of Man will be in heaven and there will be a sign that appears that this is so. Uh, The Son of Man, which for years has in His public ministry, which was His favorite title for Himself, Jesus would use this title that was prophesied in the book of Daniel. He used that as His favorite title for Himself to those He ministered to, even in front of the Jews and the leaders of the nation, for the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It was a recognition that they would identify with. He says, now, there's going to be a sign. 
when the Son of Man is seated in heaven, that will be a sign for you. And the point is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will be a sign that the Son of Man is enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand, ruling over the nations and bringing vengeance on His enemies, particularly in AD 70 upon His people who rejected Him, who cried out for His crucifixion and they themselves would be punished in like manner. From a prophetic point of view, the day of the Lord when Jerusalem would be destroyed in the time of the outpouring of His Holy Spirit would coincide, coalesce together in prophetic language. In Joel chapter 2, the very passage that, that Peter then interpreted on the day of Pentecost saying that this is prophesied by Joel when the Spirit is poured out upon you. He says in the same passage, and I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And what we're seeing is prophetic language that oftentimes the prophets are prophesying from the vantage point, not from seeing it on a collinear perspective, but looking down from the time point, and they can't see how all of the events line up, so they all kind of go together. And so this great vengeance of the Lord upon His people and the pouring out of the Spirit are seen as part of the same kind of event And then verse 30, the end of verse 30, it says, The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in great power and glory. You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, seated and enthroned in glory of heaven. And when you see Him, you will acknowledge He is King. The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in great power and glory. Again, figurative language, but not language that is unfamiliar. All throughout the Old Testament, God is referenced on clouds. We see the cloudy pillar. We see the presence of the glory of God in that cloudy pillar. But we also see clouds as His chariot. And chariots are those things that are implements of war. In Psalm 104.3, who maketh the clouds his chariot. There's the war reference to a chariot. Isaiah 19.1, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, his chariot, and he will come into Egypt. This cloud chariot on which Jesus comes in judgment, he speaks a couple of chapters later. At his trial to the great high priest, Caiaphas at the time. And the high priest answered and said to him in Matthew 26, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was in reference, of course, to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, of which the high priest would have been well familiar. That scripture that says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he, became, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought near him. This is when Christ ascends back upon the throne. He comes to the Ancient of Days, sits down on his throne. And verse 14 says, And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall never be destroyed. Our King Jesus is reigning today. We are not looking for Him to begin His reign when He comes back the second time. He is ruling and reigning over all of the nations. And all power has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. And He says, now go with that power, making disciples of Him in all of the nations and baptizing them and teaching them whatsoever things I command you. 
And the destruction of Jerusalem was that sign given to these people that the Son of Man was now in heaven, seated on His throne. When they saw all of these terrible things happen to Jerusalem and the temple. They, the leaders, heard, they knew that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. They heard that. They knew that Jesus had claimed that He would be raised on the third day. That's why they wanted to seal the tomb. But nothing could contain the victorious work of Christ. Nothing would stop the hand of God. And as He ascended up into the clouds, as His disciples looked upon, He went up into heaven. He took His heavenly throne. He signified this to the Jews 40 years later when He came with His wrath and His vengeance upon those who had rejected Him, who should have received Him. And from that point, it says the angels are sent forth into the whole world to gather the elect. Verse 31. The way that that reads, again, takes a little explanation. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's what I'm doing right now. The angel here in this term is a word that means messenger. It can sometimes mean angelic beings, but it is not all the time used that way. It is sometimes used as heralds of the gospel. In fact, it is used of John the Baptist when Matthew 11.10, it says, For this is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, Angelos, there's the word, before your face, and he will prepare your way before you. We see this reference used in Revelation 2 and 3 when he's addressing the Angelos, the messenger of the church, the seven churches there. These are not angelic beings, but the pastors of the churches that Jesus is addressing. Jesus is here speaking about the worldwide evangelism through the preaching of the gospel and that which He uses to gather in His elect at the heralding of the trumpet. And as the trumpet of the Word of God is is heralded forth, God uses that to bring in His elect into His kingdom. And that is going on even up to this day and even in our very midst. Now all what Jesus was saying here has been described of what is going on in their generation. All of these events will coincide with the first advent, some of which have, have been finished, all, and some of which have been having everlasting results. The preaching of the gospel began even before the destruction of Jerusalem. And we see that the the, the witness of the gospel had gone out throughout all the world. So the Apostle Paul could even say to the Colossian church that this gospel has gone out through all of the world. And it continues to this day. But those events of what Jesus is talking about, the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation and the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds and the showing of His exhibition of His great dominion over all nations, that has been completed. And the ongoing results of that continue to this day as Christ is reigning. His gospel is powerful. He is continuing His reign and righteousness at the Father's right hand in all power and in all of His authority. Now there's some lessons we need to learn from this today. What the Lord says in His Word, He will do. The covenant promises that He has promised for those who come into covenant relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. He promises blessing upon blessing, the likes of which you cannot contain in your mind or your imagination. Never think you're going to have so much blessing. But there's also curses, the likes of which you will not know for your infidelity and your rejection of Jesus Christ if you do not receive Him if you do not count Him as your Lord, if you do not follow Him with your life in trust.
So while the blessings are beyond our comprehension, so is the severity and the judgment of God, especially upon those who have had the light of the gospel and have rejected it. The book of Hebrews is written to warn us, but to warn us not to fall back from our faith. It is being preached to a people who have received God, but with great warnings not to fall back. And he says in the 10th chapter of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And the Lord says, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. When this church ceases to lose its gravitas, when this church ceases uh, to have a gravitas, when this church begins to treat God tritely, we are on the path of ruin. The church needs to wake up today and heed the covenant warnings of our Lord. We need to repent of our sins. We need to say the same thing that God says about our sins. We need to let God inform us what our sins are and describe it the way He would describe it. And we need to recover our first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be obedient in everything that Christ has taught us. We need to defend His creative design. We need to stand up for male and female genders as the only divinely oriented and specifically given genders that are in existence. We need to obey the fundamentals of life. We need to defend marriage as only between one man and one woman and that for life. We need to stand up and proclaim and trumpet the herald of the gospel from the housetops at the word of the truth and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We need to be a faithful people to God's covenant and obey everything that Christ has taught us to obey. We need to bow our knee to King Jesus and not think our own ways or try to put Him in a box to make Him more comfortable to our pleasure. We need to pursue holiness with every fiber in our being. We need to pursue peace rather than stirring up strife. We need to keep the Lord's Sabbath holy and stop doing our own pleasures on this His holy day and call this a great delight and stop speaking your own words on this His day. Speak of His grace and of His truth and of His mercy and of His glory and of His goodness and of His greatness and of His severity. We need to honor our parents and our leaders and be obedient to the ordinances God has given to us in our lives. We need not to be apathetic. We need not to be lazy or lethargic. This is covenant fidelity. And when Jews rejected their Messiah because their ladder was leaning against the wrong building, we need to make sure that our building and we're building up the way that Christ has taught us to build. That all of the wood, hay, and stubble would not be characteristic of our church or of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to stop slandering our neighbor and stop our gossip. We need to stop spreading false rumors and false untrue narratives. We need to stop loving this world and the things of this world and stop being influenced by its worldview and its, its thinking and its perverseness. God is a severe God. And if we are unfaithful to Him, He will judge us righteously and severity in His wrath. He warned churches of that very thing in Revelation 2 and 3. But if we love the Lord our God and embrace His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and delight in Him above all things, 
and love Him more than we love all things, He will bless us beyond measure, the likes of which you will never comprehend or think. And that is the blessing that the Jews missed. They were climbing a ladder and they were dedicated to that ladder leaning against the wrong building. And make sure your ladder is leaning against the right building. The temple of God. Jesus Christ Himself. And that your faith is leaning on God, the right God, the God of the Bible. The God who in Jesus saves this world from its sins, He does not cater to them. Our God is such a loving God to save us. But He does so through the severity of His judgment on sin. And if you are in Christ and you're found in union with Him, the severity of that judgment has already been dealt with upon Christ upon the cross. But when you lessen the severity of God in His judgment and wrath upon sin, you depreciate what our Lord has done for you and what our God has done for you on the cross. I do not think we can even begin to begin to understand what our Lord experienced upon the cross and the severe wrath of God upon Him for us. That we in Him will never experience that if Christ is our Lord. The love of God, the severity of God, come together on the cross. Jesus needs the building, needs to be the building on which your ladder of faith is leading today. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture and the things that have been written aforetime are written for our learning that in them we might have hope. And we pray that as we learn the lessons of Scripture, our hearts would be open to this and that we would take heed into ourselves and to our ministry that we would fulfill it. That we would find our lives hidden with Christ in God so that when He appears, we shall appear with Him in glory. And if there is here... One here today that does not have his life hidden with Christ, who has not made Christ his Lord, who has not called upon him to save him or her from their sins and turn their life over to follow Jesus. We pray that right now through the preaching of the word, the spirit of God would open that heart and bring the elect to yourself. We pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would now work to bring forth fruit for Christ from His vine. We pray that the vine of, of heritage would be faithful and remain faithful. We would hear the warnings of Scripture and we would flee to that which is good and flee youthful lust and we would cling to those things which are lovely and of good report and are righteous. That we would take heed of the things of God and we would see the blessing and the joy and the glory and the goodness and we would love those things which you love and hate those things which you hate. And we pray this day the Spirit of God would apply these things in our lives that if we're entertaining any sin, you convict us in our conscience and our hearts and that you would lead us in the path of righteousness and true godly repentance. And know the blessing of forgiveness in Christ, who is our life and who is our joy and who is the victory over all of our sins and His. And we pray this in His strong, victorious, reigning name. Amen.